This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Back in June, Liverpool added to their illustrious European history, lifting a sixth European Cup in Madrid as Tottenham Hotspur were seen off. Yet while that came off the backdrop of a titanic title race in the Premier League and making up for a missed opportunity in Kiev 12 months earlier, the Reds' previous European triumph was anything but. Head back to the summer of 2004 and after six years of Gerard Houllier's solo reign at Anfield, Rafa Benitez was ushered in during a period of change. Not only had Houllier departed, but the likes of Owen, Heskey and Murphy, all key parts of the treble-winning side just three years previous, were also on their way before the new campaign had started. But what was to follow has gone down not only in Liverpool folklore, but sporting history. Come May 2005, Liverpool, having failed to secure a lucrative top-four finish, saw their Champions League future hanging by a thread as they took on an imperious AC Milan in the competition's showpiece final. The word Istanbul holds more weight than just the name of an Eastern European city. To some, it's simply the pinnacle. 15 years on, here on the Blood Red podcast, we'll be bringing you a 13-part series reliving and documenting the Reds' road to the final on each Champions League match day. From the players and those working in the background to journalists, pundits and most importantly fans, we'll hear the stories and tales as Liverpool cemented their place in European history forevermore. I'm Guy Clark and this is The Road to Istanbul, 15 years on. And for our first instalment is one of the Echo's many resident Reds and that is Dan Cade. Dan, thanks for joining us and... uh, Mention it there, the word Istanbul, it, it does carry a fair bit of weight. It does, and I think for the last 15 years, for me, and I think countless other Liverpoolians, all it takes is the mention, even the thought of that word, to bring us out in a daft grin uh, and big smiles and fond memories, which really has actually only been cemented um, in the last month or so because we went back there to win to win the, the UEFA Super Cup. And obviously this year, right at the, sort of the, the start of the Champions League route, obviously Liverpool starting away in Napoli. But this year, of course, the final is back in Istanbul once more. Well, it, it's, it's extraordinary the way things pan out sometimes, isn't it? The fact that we were sent back there 14 years on from the next, next European Cup win after Istanbul. And there is the potential to go back there at, right at the end of May, should we make it to the final again, which obviously is something that we're all hoping that Jürgen and the boys can accomplish for us. Yeah, mentioned there, we're going to take themes through this 13-part step and looking at each of the match days that Liverpool were involved in. and The context around it all and everything as well, and our first sort of theme, I suppose, that we'll go with is the supporters' point of view, because for that first Champions League group game back in the 2004-05 campaign at home to Monaco, the thing that really sort of leaps off the page when you look at it is there were only 33,500 supporters at Anfield that night. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, I, I was quite, I'm surprised when, when you pointed out, pointed that out, although kind of thinking back, thinking back to it, um, I can kind of see how that would have happened, even if it doesn't necessarily follow the logic that, that you would expect. I mean, this was only Liverpool's third ever Champions League campaign. We didn't qualify it for it until 2001. I think it started about eight years before, 92-3. Um, so we had the first two seasons under, under Gerard Houllier. The first season, which went very well, and we got to the quarterfinals, were knocked out by, by a Leverkusen. Um, when a two-legged semi-final against a not really top-draw Manchester United was beckoning and a potential final in Glasgow, um, which was eventually won by Zinedine Zidane's spectacular volley. Uh, and then the, the, the following season, 2002-03, really sadly was the start of the unravelling of the of the Houllier reign. And really, I think it was in the Champions League that, that, that it kind of became evident that 
that kind of meteoric progress of the first couple of years wasn't really going to be maintained. For, and, and the ultimate irony of that is that it was the two games really against the Valencia side who beat us home and away yeah. that kind of really shone a light on that. And of course, it's only in the context of history that you realise now that that Valencia team was managed by none other than Rafa Benitez. And looking at that sort of time, we'll, we'll, we'll look at the, the game against Monaco and the context of everything around it, but those three or four years building up, especially in Europe for Liverpool, it did seem a rebirth of Liverpool, obviously during the, the late 70s and 80s. Liverpool huge in Europe, winning all before them, the four European Cups, of course, but it did seem around the turn of the millennium that it was almost as though something was beginning to build for Liverpool. Definitely. I mean, I, I kind of came along the scene just towards the end of that year. I was born actually two days after we won it for the first time in Rome in 77. I was born the night the European Cup actually arrived at Anfield for the first time for Tommy Smith's testimonial. But my, my, my first European game, and really my only European game for the best part of a decade, longer than a decade, was the 85 semi-final against Panathinaikos, which in the context of history, I kind of wish we'd lost now, but... Um, as we got to once Hule took over in '98, um, on the back of it seemed like the you know the the foreign influx into the Premier League, Arsene Wenger, obviously France's World Cup win, um, it very much felt like Liverpool as a club was modernising uh, and was really was getting up to speed, having been maybe left behind in the earlier part of the decade, and it was quite clear that um, Hule, obviously having come from abroad, and having have already having had. You know, his main managerial successes, I think, were with PSG, won the league with them in 86, I think, uh, and then took over as, I think most of us really knew him as, uh, you know, a rather somewhat failed French manager who'd, who'd, who'd not been able to qualify them for the World Cup in the early 90s. But it quickly became apparent that not just his mentality, but the, that of some of the players that he was bringing in, I wouldn't say necessarily was, was tailored primarily towards Europe, but very much saw Europe as a key element of Liverpool's identity, which is right and which is correct. And I think obviously the, the way things have transpired over the 15 to 20 years since then, um, it's almost, you almost kind of get the impression that we almost kind of maybe lost track of who we were and what we were about um, during that you know, rather unhappy spell in the early to mid 90s. And Julio, as well as kind of bringing the club up to speed in terms of like the training and the, the nutrition and what really the modern game demanded very much part of that was tapping into kind of like the European culture and and identity that really the kind of couple of generations before mine had very much bought into and which obviously now in 2018-19 the the, the couple of generations below us are very much into and and it's it's kind of goes hand in hand really Liverpool and Europe. We may be split on this but I suppose one of the things that there's, there's different fads that have come in through modern football, but one of those in European football, I think that always sort of has stood really the test of time and it has gone down really as iconic, certainly for, for my generation. And talking of Liverpool being new into the Champions League at the time back in September t- 2004, is hearing that Champions League theme mm. around Anfield and sort of realising where you are and, and that this is the competition. Like I say, there are corny things, but I think the Champions League music, it, it does just seem to sit right. I'll be perfectly honest with you, Guy. For years, me and some of my mates used to rather sneer at the Champions League theme and we used to kind of refer to the, the starry ball music. Um, now, maybe whether part of that was down to kind of a slightly too cool for school elements or the fact that you know, Liverpool didn't really have much involvement in the Champions League, so maybe we were trying to convince ourselves that, oh, well, it's just a load of modern crap anyway. As time has gone on, um, 
and obviously, I mean, it's funny Liverpool in the Champions League. Obviously, yeah, we've won it, been in four finals in 14 years, but we have had long spells without it until we got back into it under Klopp uh, at the start of 17, 18, the year that ended in Kiev. All of a sudden, we'd had, I think we'd had one campaign in about in about 10 years. So we've had, yeah, it, it, it has been kind of a little bit feast or famine with 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 us in the modern era of the Champions League. Or, I mean, I always like to kind of refer to it as the European Cup. To me, yeah. that's what I grew up with in it, and it will be the European Cup. But I think certainly for, I think certainly for a lot of people, that that music does have a, a real kind of resonance, and just adds to that kind of special atmosphere that um, that is generated at Anfield on the on those nights. And and you can tell that I think I think you can tell that, that the players kind of tap into that kind of ideology as well, and it just. You know, to me, one of one of the sadnesses about European football is the way that the the as I, again as I like to refer to it, the Euro, the UEFA Cup, and the Europa League has been slightly denigrated um, in recent years, and isn't really taken as seriously. And I personally think that the group stage, you know, bringing group stages into it, has has played a big part in the decline of that. But having that theme music, I think, just give when when you're turning up for a big game, and you know the floodlights are on and the ground's packed. That kind of that Champions League tune just gives you that little reminder that this is the this is the elite competition, you know, the 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 champions of champions, as it were. Well, as it was originally regarded as before teams that finished fourth got into it, but we'll gloss over that. Yeah, part. we'll gloss over that point <laughs> because this wasn't a stellar Liverpool team by any no, stretch that it. was in it. And talking of stellar sides and going straight into the competition, first game obviously there, there had been the qualifiers that Liverpool had knocked out Gratz to to get through. And that wasn't plain sailing, a 2-0 no. away win and a 1-0 defeat at Anfield. But the first game of the group stage proper against Monaco, none other than the beaten finalists of the year before. Yeah, and I suppose when you, you know, going back to that, you know, the rather paltry crowd of barely 30,000, that does, you know, it, it, that does seem a little surprising when you think that, A, it was, you know, relatively new manager, Benitez had only been at, had only been at the helm six weeks or so. It was, like I say, only the third season that we've been in the competition, having had a break the previous season when, when we we uh, didn't qualify and, and we're stuck in the Euro, Euro, UEFA Cup and got knocked out by Marseille in the quarters, I think. Um, but yeah, Monaco had had a great run to the final. They'd had a great side they, um, that season before. I think, if, if I remember rightly, they knocked out Chelsea in the semi-finals with uh, Fernando Morientes, I think, scoring twice at Stamford Bridge, who we were all eyeing up and thinking he could do a good job for us. And it was very disappointing when the whole Michael Owen uh, scenario, kind of, which played out only a month or two before, as obviously he ended up going to Real Madrid. And I think it's quite well documented that Liverpool wanted to bring Morientes in at the time as a direct replacement um, for Owen. Real Madrid uh, decided not to play ball with us, basically kept on to him for another six months and cup-tied him. Uh, which meant I, I think, never gave him really a chance to succeed at Liverpool. But they did have a good side. Um, I think, but, but but they lost they lost a few key players that summer. If, yeah, Ludovic Julie, I think, was Julie, one of those. Julie was a big star for them. That being said, yeah, they they did have some uh, Jerome Rothen went went, yep. went to PSG. Who, who was a decent player. That being said, they did bring in. I remember Mohamed Kalon who came in yep. that summer. He, he'd made quite a, na- a name for himself in Italy. And Javier Saviola, who went on to certainly play for Barcelona. Did he play for Madrid yeah. as well? Yeah, he did later I play for Madrid, but yeah. yeah, he came from Barcelona. As you say, at the time he was a big name, but you look at the, the players they lost, they did lose Morientes. Dado Perso, of course, went to Rangers, who was part of that side, Ludovic Julie as well, who'd all helped them. But the really interesting thing, I think, looking at the team that 
Monaco had at the time is a number of players who would go on to do big things. Yeah. <laughs> Patrice Everett at left back, but at right back, Macon, the guy who went on to Inter Milan and Man City, of course. Yeah. And Emmanuel Adibayor as one of their strikers. I mean, at the time, they were names that wouldn't really have meant anything to us. But look, just you know, having a little bit of a, a look back over things um, before before we're chatting here, they were two names that that kind of leap right right off the page, and I think goes to show the kind of pedigree of opposition that Liverpool were up against. I mean, Monaco. They're a funny club, Monaco, aren't they? Because, you know, they're very much, you know, as a name, they're very much entrenched in kind of European history because until recently, the Super Cup was always played there. It's only really the last five, ten years that it's been kind of moved around. And really for, for, for a club of, I think don't think they've ever really, they've got a smallish ground, don't think they've ever really averaged more than ten or 15,000 there. But they've often, you know, they've, um, they've often seemed to kind of punch above their weight. Um, obviously, in, in the last couple of years, they had, a, they had a, did they get to the, the semis. So, I mean, yeah, they, they the seem to pr- produce these sides that reach the semi-finals and then get, and get torn clean. limb from yeah. limb. <laughs> and then it takes them 10 years to come back again. But mm. they were a side, like we say, full of sort of young up-and-coming players at the time. And I suppose going into the game, the atmosphere around Liverpool, you'll know far better than I, but obviously they'd been the defeat away at Bolton early on in the, the season mm. under Rafa Benitez. Looking at, obviously, the low attendance number, but also the mood around the place, being in the Champions League, what was the expectation at the time from sort of the the supporter point of view? From what I can remember, um, there was no real great expectation that Liverpool were likely to challenge towards the business end of the competition. I think we we all turned up for that first match day one. Hoping that we get off to a good start, um, we had the new new French centre forward Cisse that I think I think he he scored on his debut at Tottenham, but I'm not sure he'd scored since then before 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 this match, which was probably best part of three four weeks later. Um, the fact that you know we'd we'd we all loved Hulé's reign, and it, it's a real kind of source of regret that. It's one of those what ifs. You'll never know how things would have pan out if he hadn't taken ill the way he did. I've always kind of felt that he was never quite the same after that. Um, and things did, you know, sadly go downhill in that last year to 18 months. So, so I think there was, you know, thinking about how I felt at the time, and 15 years is a long time, but um, I think there was just a certain sense of just kind of, without wanting to sound too non league about it, just be kind of being happy to be there, really. To be eating at the top table again, hoping that, you know, we, this was a new era under a new manager with new players, new kits, new everything. And if we could get off to a good start, a good, you know, a good European run would hopefully help us have a good domestic season and get us nearer to where we wanted to be because I think the previous season we'd finished probably a good 20, 25 points behind Arsenal's Invincibles. This is, you know, only a couple of years after, I think in 2002 when Arsenal won the double under Wenger then, I think we'd only been about maybe five or ten points behind. I remember, yeah, we were still kind of on the fringe of the title race going into late April. So I think really the idea was let's narrow the, narrow the gap towards the top teams domestically. But I don't think there was any, certainly on my part, there was no real expectation of of European success. And I think the way I, I and probably a few others would have been looking at it was if we get out the group, really, we've done quite well. And then you see where the knockouts take you. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. 
Benitez, despite being a European manager, had a real good domestic pedigree. Won the league with Valencia in his last year before obviously coming to Liverpool. Yeah, and I mean, I have to be perfectly honest. I've, as someone that's kind of always had certainly quite a big interest in Italian football and kept an eye on Spanish football, I didn't really know who, who, who Rafa was uh, when we signed him. I remember having to kind of swat up a fair bit just to kind of so it didn't look like a, an idiot who didn't know what the hell I was talking about when I was when I was in the boozer. Um, but I think the thing that the thing that stood out about his uh, his record when you were scrutinising it was that um, I suppose similar in a similar way to what Alex Ferguson has managed to do uh, when he was at Aberdeen up in Scotland. Similarly, Benitez with Valencia had managed to kind of break the top two hegemony of uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona and win two leagues and the UEFA Cup. I think with you know a relatively small and unfashionable club like Valencia. We're already aware by this stage that, you know, the onset of big money into football was just started to happen. I think Abramovich had been at Chelsea just over a year. Yeah. He, he took over the, the the summer before 2003. So what we were looking for was that someone that's, you know, without well, paint Liverpool as some poor, impoverished minnows, which wasn't quite the case, but the reality was we weren't eating at the same financial table as the likes of Chelsea. And obviously as time would go on Manchester City. So we did need someone that could cut our cloth accordingly and enable us to co- enable us to compete with kind of street smarts and shrewd buys rather than just bludgeoning our way and buying up every player in the transfer market. And I suppose being shrewd in this Champions League group was a big thing because we spoke about Monaco and obviously the game finished 2-0, Gibriel Cisse and Milan Barros, who had just been top scorer at the European Championships, hadn't he, the, the summer before? He has. Um, I was I was actually at Barros's Liverpool debut, which was in the new camp. Um, in that first Champions League season when there was you know it seems strange to think of it now there was actually two group stages then there was a first group stage that finished kind of like in late October early November and then a second group stage which then qualified you for the quarters and I do remember him he, he came on with about 15 minutes to go in the new camp and went, and went on what would end up being a kind of trademark Barros run with his head down yeah. just trying to bore his way through people with everyone screaming get your head up and shoot Um but the he his 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 star really kind of started to to rise. In the, he, he was probably one of the few that actually benefited from that last season under um, Hule, when um, he you know I think he was only about eighteen nineteen when he when he signed, but he started to get a little bit more experience, a little bit more know how, and I think being part they had a good side the checks the the likes of um, Ned Ved and Jan Collar. Um, Thomas Rosicki. Thomas, was it? Yeah, he, yeah Petr Cech, I think, was just on. Petr Cech that summer actually just moved to Chelsea as well. So that's right, that's right. So, so I think he he he, he, you know, he was he was in a good moment, and uh, you know, it, it is his his career. Really, I don't think his career ever really kind of scaled those heights again. Mm. It it always seems a bit strange when you think about it that he his last game for Liverpool was was the final in Istanbul. I think he signed for Villa that summer. But um, and his career kind of really after such a promising start, signing from some I think Banak Ostrava in, in his home country. Yep. By the time he was kind of like in his in his late twenties, I think he I think he was and ended up knocking around smaller clubs on on the fringes of Europe. But no one can ever take away from him. Yeah, he he was the leading scorer. Was there a game against Holland when they were two down and won three two? Yeah, which I remember him watching. I think he certainly got got a goal or two in that game. Obviously. It helps as well by the fact that at the time Liverpool still had, um, I think Bert, Patrick Berger had left, but Vladimir Speecher. Yeah. So I think 
and, and Sweetcher still was very much part of that Czech team. Uh, obviously, that would also be it would also be Sweetcher's last season at Anfield. But I think that certainly helped Barros bed in and maybe kind of feel that he had feel that he deserved to be part of that squad. And you know, him and Cisse really were kind of doing battle, even though they both scored in this game. I can't, did they both start? Um, no, they, no, they didn't actually. Barros came on as a sub to replace Cisse midway through the second half. And really, that was the way of things for both of them throughout that season. Um, I think that was very much the case in the final. As we obviously got to know Rafa and his his ways and the way he likes to set up a team, he was largely very much one that, that kind of like one out-and-out striker and then a number 10 playing in between the lines, a Smeech or a Garcia just behind him. Um, so so I'd be I, I don't think, I can't remember them playing too many games together, Cissé and Barros, but both of them ended up playing quite significant parts at various points in what what ultimately was to become a very successful and memorable season. And obviously talking over the last few years around this time of Liverpool's success in Europe, of course, 2001 won the UEFA Cup into the uh, Champions League the following year where obviously lost in the quarterfinal against Leverkusen. As you say, 12 games to just get to quarterfinals. There's more on Leverkusen, of course, to come Mm. in this story for Liverpool but of course yeah in that <laughs> second group game it did seem and we did speak about it before the birth the rebirth of Liverpool in Europe Heskey's goal against Roma Lippmann and obviously scoring in that in that game mm. as well that that was the time perhaps that Anfield first became that cauldron on a European night once more that obviously with the terrace of the cop in yesteryear that was mythology to a certain generation of fans where now in what was modern Anfield it, it, yeah. it, it kept that soul I mean I don't think you can be a Liverpool supporter really and not appreciate obviously the significance that Europe has to us as a club it does in many ways define how we see ourselves as a club and how we want others to see us but the, the, but there was but there was a long spell with us like I say my first game was April my first European game was April 85 I think my second one was a quarter final against Bram Bergen in the Cup Winners Cup in 97 um, so the, really, there was a whole generation that missed out on European football, partly because of the ban, um, sadly instituted after Heysel, but then also partly because you know Liverpool just weren't that good. Unfortunately, in the 90s, there was you know, obviously a significant decline. Um, but as we started to kind of you know regird our loins under Julier, um, that UA, I think the, really it was the UEFA Cup run in 2000, yeah. 2001 that really kind of set the tone for that. Obviously, we'll come on to Olympiacos, who, who ended up playing a big role in obviously this particular season for Liverpool but I always think one of one of kind of the great forgotten Anfield games is the game against Olympiacos four years before the famous 2004 one December to, almost actually four years to the day we played them in I think the third round of the UEFA in that 2000-2001 two-legged tie drew two all over there which was a which was a good result and then beat them 2 at Anfield goals in either half I think from Heskey and Barmby but that to me was like the you know you could just start to sense this was a Liverpool team that was, but it, it, it this was this Liverpool team that ended up winning a treble of cup triumphs that season, UEFA Cup, League Cup, and FA Cup. And even though they'd had you know the, a bit of a checkered time in the league that season, I think even by early December they'd already lost four or five games, including you know a few teams that they shouldn't be losing. There was this sense that there was a bit of momentum building, and I think that the the Olympiacos game kind of set the the template for that. Then they played Roma um, in the next round when Owen scored twice away. We lost the home leg, but went through on aggregate. One slightly hair-raising moment when just after Roma had got a goal back, the referee gave them a penalty and then decided to change his mind. But I think really the the relatively straightforward quarterfinal win against Porto drew 
0-0 away, 1-2 at home. But then really, I think it was the semi-final against Barcelona that kind of really set... For that, for this generation, the template of the Anfield match that was to follow, we, we drew nil nil in the first leg in the in the, the Camp Nou, which was my first European away match, and then there was the second leg at Anfield, which came only three days after uh, a famous derby win at Goodison when Gary McAllister scored a forty-four yard free kick in the fourth minute of stoppage time, which to kind of salvage Liverpool's at the time what seemed to be dwindling hopes of qualifying for the Champions League the following season. And this was still a bar. It wasn't. It wasn't a vintage Barcelona side, but it was. They had. They had Rivaldo. They had a young Pep Guardiola. Well, probably not that young. Guardiola playing for them in midfield. Puyol at the back. A young Pepe Reina in goal. And yeah, by this stage, Liverpool had already won the League Cup. Had already qualified for the FA Cup final. And. At the time, without question, it was my greatest night as Liverpoolian. Uh, we won one nil, uh, a penalty converted by Gary McAllister after a, a, a daft handball by Patrick Cliver just before half time. But this was part of the kind of what you could really look at as a real kind of renaissance of Liverpool in Europe. And I think this was built on certainly in the following season when we got to the quarterfinals against Leverkusen. As I say, you look back at that game with hindsight and. Leverkusen were a good side. You know, they, they, they knocked out Man United in the semi-finals, and really they could have won that final. Everyone, you know, I mentioned it myself. Everyone goes on about Zidane's volley, but a young Ike Casillas, I remember, um, really was the hero for Madrid that night yeah. at Hampden, making a couple of great saves. This was a Leverkusen side that had the likes of Michael Balak, Dimitar Berbatov. Um, I think even a young Andre Voronin, <laughs> who obviously ended up in Liverpool <laughs> yeah. a few years later, maybe not quite as heralded as the other two. But um, round, you know, round about the turn of the decade, you really kind of sense that Liverpool were starting to come again as a European force. So even if obviously there was sadly a drop off in that last season under Julier, Benitez, I think, was able to tap, you know, it was, it was only really simmering underneath the surface. And all it needed really was a couple of good wins as proved to be the case during the autumn to kind of really get that that feeling up and running again. And as we'll go as this series will go on to illustrate, um those you know, it, it was ignited pretty quickly again and rapidly kind of the fires started to rage again in a good way. And certainly there on the reminiscing side of things, the two thousand two three season was the year that Liverpool didn't get out of the, the group stage no. in the Champions League. Obviously the final game of that was away in Basel, needing to beat Basel to go through. But this again, and looking through the names on the team sheets, the the final score and the pattern of how the game went, very similar, very to, Istanbul, similar yeah, yeah. to Istanbul, because Liverpool three down at half-time, draw 3-3. Three, three, Penalty rebound. And nine of the 14 players used in both Basel and Istanbul were the same. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's... I think it... it, it, what it Gerard Hulier... Um, I think sometimes gets a bit of a bad rap from Liverpool supporters. Like I said before, it's 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 always a kind of like a real wistful what if he hadn't got ill moments. And I do remember it came out after after we won in Istanbul that he'd been in the dressing room. And I think some people tried to kind of put it like to try to put a bit of a slant on that, kind of say he was trying to claim credit for it. But the reality is, like you say, in cold hard facts, you know, what basically two thirds of that team was his. And if you ever listen to the likes of, of Jamie Carragher, Stephen Gerrard, other players from that era, 
they will always say that you know, listen, he wasn't perfect, and you know, no manager is, and I'm sure you know he had his faults like like anybody else. But they they are never slow in making sure that he gets the credits he he deserves for really kind of modernising and revitalising the club, and kind of putting into place some of the principles that the likes of Rafa Benitez and other managers since then have managed to kind of take on. Um, with with great success, so it was yeah. It, it, I remember that, I remember both those battle games, particularly the game at Anfield when we battered them, yeah. um, and it, you know it, it was it we only drew one one. I remember I think that was that might have been the um, I think that would have been the second game of the group because I think we lost away. So we're talking about two oh three now, aren't we? We lost yeah. away two 0 to Valencia in the first game and then drew one one with them. I think Barros scored for us. Possibly Heskey. Um, but I remember walking out the ground thinking that might be costly, that you, you, you've got to win your home games. And even if I probably, like many people, slightly underestimated Basel. Um, and obviously, as time's gone on, they've actually proven to be quite a... You know, the, the, it, it's not the, the luckiest name for us, Basel, no. really. There was... Um, obviously, they, they, they knocked us out in 0203. I think 11 years later, under Brendan Rodgers, uh, we couldn't get past them in the final games to, to, to get through then. We obviously lost to Sevilla in their stadium in the Europa League final in 2016. So we kind of owe Basel one, really. Um, the, 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 it's not been the luckiest, um, one, of the, one of our more lucky opponents or, or names. But um, yeah, it, it was it was a very a very unusual parallel between that 3-3 and the other one that was to follow only, what, a couple of years later? Yeah, and obviously the the group stage then up and running for Liverpool with a 2-0 win over Monaco. Of course, we mentioned beaten finalists the year before, lost 3-0 to Porto in that final, but left in the group. Next up was a trip away to Olympiacos, which of course will, will follow up. But also in the group, Deportivo La Coruña, a side who'd reached the quarterfinal in three of the previous four years mm. and semi-finalists the year before. This wasn't an easy group for Liverpool. No, they, they were a good side. I think the, the um, they had some really good players, Jalminia, Roy Mackay up front, big Dutch centre forward. Uh, Iruretta, I, th- I, th- I, th- I think, was the manager at the time. And they had a kind of real European pedigree. Um, I don't know. I think I don't know if they ever won a La Liga, but I think they came close a couple of times, didn't they? And they were very much kind of like a force to be reckoned with. And I do... Yeah, I think we, we drew with them. At, obviously, we'll get onto this. We drew with them at Anfield and won away. But I do remember walking out of the nil-nil at home thinking, without contradicting myself too much, having just said a couple of years before, a draw against Basel was a bad result. It didn't quite feel the same against Deportivo because you knew they were a good side. Yeah. Um, and that's, I guess maybe Liverpool was still really kind of learning how to play these six-game groups because obviously until we qualified for the Champions League for the first time in 2001-2, all our European encounters were over two legs, and it is very much a different. It, it's apples and oranges. It, it is a different kettle of fish. The whole kind of concept of you know, do you go for an away goal or how you approach the games? It does. It it takes a while to get used to, and it's um, really it's incredible when you, you know it, it, it. It's astonishing that Liverpool managed to go all the way in what was only their third season in that format, because it because it it does take it does take a fair bit of getting used to. And it it was a tough group for Liverpool. Um, you know, Monaco, as, as we said, with the previous year's finalists. Deportivo, I think only the season be, was it, it was the season before when they had a one of the greatest European finals of all. Sorry, one of the greatest European fight backs of all time. Against, Coincidentally, against of all of all teams, a great AC Milan side who were the were the Champions League holders at the time, yeah. having won it in at Old Trafford in 03 against Juventus on penalties. It was a quarter final, I think. They won four one in Milan, and then astonishingly lost four nil 
in La Coruña. I remember watching that and thinking, well, yeah, Milan will... I'll watch it because you know, you always want to. You, you've always got a, an eye for an upset, but you weren't expecting anything to happen. Um, and Olymp- and Olympiacos were the other team in the group who were always regarded as um, you know seasoned European campaigners. They're not necessarily a team that is going to go to the latter stages too often, but not many teams go to Greece and win. You, know, you always kind of it's always kind of said that they don't travel too well, but they're pretty strong at home. As Liverpool was to find out to their cost, uh, obviously in the following match. Yeah, obviously, following match then against Olympiacos. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time to look ahead to that one and talk through the context behind that that game. I've been Guy Clark. Dan Kay's been alongside me. Dan, thanks a lot for, for your time. Thanks very much, Guy. I really enjoyed it. And how would Liverpool fare in Olympiacos? Well, we all know how it's played out now, but join us in a couple of weeks' time as we continue to chart Liverpool's rise and run to Istanbul here on the road to Istanbul, 15 years on, on the Blood Red podcast. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.